0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Mo Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Sam Ford, the chef and owner of Tuck Tuck Bites, has gone from a home cook to having her recipes featured on the cover of Food & Wine. Sam's food marries the unique flavors of Sri Lanka with her southern
2: upbringing. I like to put people together to find, you know, a common ground. And I like to put foods together to find a common ground. I'm just someone who wants to bring all of the good stuff from all over into the same place. Also
0: coming up, we learn a recipe for Portuguese sponge cake known as Pau de ló, And Dan Pashman tells us about his three-year journey to create a whole new pasta shape. But first, it's my interview with Annalise Gregory. From a two-year road trip with her parents in Australia to top-notch restaurant gigs in both London and Paris, Annalise likes to move around. Today, she's found a home in Tasmania and has taken up diving for sea urchins, floundering, and also hunting for wallabies. Her cookbook, How Wild Things Are, details her adventurous life and the recipes that she cooks at the bottom of the world. Annalise, welcome to Milk Street.
3: Thanks very much. You
0: have one of the most interesting resumes of anybody who's been on the show. And we'll, we'll get to wallaby hunting later. But when you were a kid, you say that your family drove around Australia for two years. <laughs> Could you explain what that really means?
3: Uh, yeah. So one day they just packed up from New Zealand and um, moved to Australia and then um, got a caravan. And we just drove around Australia. I did school of distance, which you would send away from each post office, and then they would send it to the next post office that you were going to be at. Hmm. I spent a lot of time shoeless in the outback um, trying to play with kangaroos.
0: <laughs> Does that is that work out well for you? I mean, they're dangerous, right, on some level?
3: Uh, I think I would just go out and like sit with them and watch all the animals feed. But I was pretty wild.
0: So you lived in Paris. You've worked at, I think, eight different restaurants in a fairly... Short amount of time. Is it the learning and the adventure of learning how to do something that's exciting? And then once you master it, you'd like to move on to something else? Or is that just the nature of the restaurant business? People do move around a lot.
3: Yeah, I love novelty. I love learning things. And so then as soon as I kind of wasn't, I'd get itchy feet, I suppose. It was, you know, work and lifestyle-based, that wanting to move on and constantly have new things like new cafes, new restaurants, and new language. And
0: you said, I'm a chef because of my anxiety. What does that mean?
3: I suppose in the beginning, I... I just found the kitchen like a really inclusive, calming place to be. And I really enjoy working with my hands. Like I can work in the kitchen for a whole day and not speak to anyone, which most people find strange, but it's because I just kind of get into a zone with cooking. It's a really nice feeling to be able to create something. And it's really satisfying for me.
0: So London, Paris, Morocco, Tasmania, Uh, the change that Tasmania was just to do something totally different.
3: Kind of, but it was also a return to the lifestyle that I had in countryside France. Like I really wanted to go back to that zipping around and like foraging in my afternoon breaks, being able to hike on the weekends and just, you know, like walk up a mountain with a cheese and a loaf of bread and just, I don't know, be in nature. There was a kind of beauty to life there that I missed moving back to the city afterwards. And so it was about trying to recreate that in rural Australia.
0: So tell us about Tasmania. I once interviewed someone who walked across it, um, almost died doing it, and it it sounded quite wild. Could just describe it a little bit?
3: I live very far south. So if I drive to the southern coast from my house, um, you're looking out straight towards Antarctica. There's no more land masses between you and Antarctica. Um, And sometimes in winter, you can feel that. It feels like the breeze comes straight off and straight over here. Um there's parts of it like the Southwest that, um, you know, you can go for five days with no roads, just like walking in, or you have to fly in in a tiny plane mm-hmm. that feel like, I don't know, one of the last great undiscovered ecosystems. So you're,
0: obviously you've been at the cutting edge of chefdom, and now you're cooking in an old farmhouse in Tasmania. Does your cooking change a lot? You have a whole different approach to cooking in the last year or so. Or are you continuing on with the same kinds of foods you've always cooked?
3: Oh, no, it's hugely different. Uh, my cooking now is a lot more inspired by just what's around. At the moment, it's coming into autumn and there's heaps of wild blackberries. And so the things I do like this week will be wild blackberry jam, um, shrubs. Uh, it's a lot more based around preservation and things because of the climate of Tasmania. Like winter's really cold and there's not a lot around. So say if I go and pick a bunch of wild mushrooms, I'll um, make a bunch into exo sauce. I'll dehydrate heaps for like stocks and things in the future. I'll pickle some. I'll ferment. Familiar- some. Um, last year I made like a wild mushroom soy sauce. So kind of every everything I can think of, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and then I keep note of the ones that I like, and then I'll do them again year after year and leave the others behind.
0: You And you also go, uh, I guess, spearfishing. You do some other things. You go hunting. Could you just talk about that?
3: Uh Yeah. So quite often I've just found a new dive spot. So I um, like free dive just from the shore for abalone and sea urchin.
0: And and wallabies, uh, describe what they look like. Uh, you were told that serving raw wallaby was not going to work out too well for you, but actually it's one of your signature dishes, I think. Um, yeah, it's weird
3: how that turned out. Um, they're like small kangaroos. They're really cute.
0: <laughs> and the idea of, of serving raw wallaby came from a dish you'd done somewhere else before? or uh, How did you get to that?
3: Um, they are wild animals. So it's a really lean meat, and sometimes with meats that lean, personally I don't love them cooked. Right. So yeah, the first thing that came to mind to do was kind of like a, a tartar.
0: And and what else do you put into it?
3: Uh, I've done many different versions. Some with uh, like fermented shiitake mushrooms, some with pepperberry, and essentially just kind of amp up the flavor, like try and make it as tasty as humanly possible. Because I found that um that's always a good way to win people over to trying new things.
0: Okay, now I'm going to ask for personal advice. You ready for this?
3: Uh, Okay.
0: (laughs) Okay. So your career and mine are very different. I keep doing the same thing year in, year out. I don't move around very much. Uh, You've had the opposite, going back to when you were seven years old. Is there something that you'd want to tell me based upon how you've lived your life you think is interesting or advice I had to take seriously? I know that's a big ask.
3: Oh, that's a huge ask. Uh, The only thing I've really thought about a lot recently is that I spent a lot of years in the mid-time of my career feeling like I wasn't really getting anywhere and um, just like, I don't know, agonizing over like which path to take and what to do. And um, moving to Tasmania was a really scary prospect for me. But um, my thing is that I don't like to be envious or jealous of other people. So whenever I find myself feeling that way, I break it down and I'm like, well, look, maybe you should just go do that. As opposed to like watching other people cook in Tasmania and being envious of what they get to do, just just go do it.
0: Annalise, it's been um, it's just really been a great pleasure having you here on Mill Street. Thank you.
3: You're so welcome.
0: That was Annalise Gregory. She's the author of How Wild Things Are: Cooking, Fishing, and Hunting at the Bottom of the World. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Molt and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. So, Sarah, before we take some calls, I do have a question for you. Okay. You've been married a while. Yes. (laughs) When it comes to foods, are there things like your significant other, are there things like he just will not eat or things that are just like absolutely at the top of his, I love this list, like special foods?
4: Oh, both. Oh, my goodness. How much time do we have? The first question, things he will not eat or does not like. And this is a problem. He does not like sweet in his savory. And so many cuisines around the world involve some form or other of sugar. And it's an important element. So that eliminates so many cuisines. I mean, he doesn't like coconut milk. You know, he's like coconuts for dessert. (laughs) So that is a real problem. Other than that, he's omnivorous. He is a carnivore. He loves lamb. He loves duck. You know, we try to eat a lot of that. You know, we also try to eat a lot of vegetables. Anything with cheese, pasta. He doesn't complain. He doesn't ask too many questions. He's just so glad I cook for him.
0: You guys are in pretty good shape.
4: We are. We are.
0: Okay, let's take calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: My name is
5: Tricia. I live in Keysville, New York.
0: How can we help you?
5: I have been making Greek yogurt at home. And I am not quite sure what to do with the whey that I get when I drain the yogurt.
0: Well, you should probably sit on a toughet, right?
5: <laughs> yes. And be Little Miss Muffet. And eat
0: your curds and whey. Yes. This is an acidic
5: whey, right? It is. It is.
0: The only thing I know is sometimes people add it to breads, you know or even pancakes, quick breads, if you want a little bit of sourness to it. I think you can do lots of other things with it, but that's the thing I probably would do. Sarah?
4: I think you could use it sort of in the places you would use lemon. All right. Recipes that needed a pick-me-up, a little acid, and many recipes do. You know, they're just plain flat. So instead of squeezing in some lemon, add a little bit of that. But you could also probably use it in recipes – like when you're making quote-unquote homemade ricotta, and you heat up milk, and I usually a little bit of heavy cream uh, to about 100, I think it's 180 degrees, and then you add some acid and it uh, curdles, mm. you know, that's how you make the little curds. You could probably use the whey left over from this yogurt to do that. Okay. And that Very might add good. a nice flavor. Um, you could maybe also use it in place of the buttermilk when you make homemade creme fraiche. I don't think you're ever going to be able to go through a lot of it, but you could use some of it. I have been adding it to soup. Yeah, I could see that in cabbage soup, you know, sweet and sour cabbage. Maybe you could use Uh it in that. I can
5: also put it on my blueberries. Oh, there you go. To
4: increase the acidity.
0: Excellent.
5: I was really, you know, considering baking aspects, how I would use it.
0: If you go to King Arthur Flour, go to their website, I'm sure they cover this topic. For baking bread, I would think tell you right, exactly good. what the proportions would be.
4: All right, thank you. Thanks, Trish. Yes, thank thanks you. for calling. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Don't you like it when people call who are doing things even crazier than we do in the kitchen? That well, makes I mean, me
4: feel like a complete slacker?
0: Yes, me you
4: too. <laughs> Here, I think I'm a cooker. Gosh, some of the people who call in—they're amazing.
0: When I'm making my own Greek yogurt, comma.
4: I know, really. Okay. <laughs> Any rate, moving on.
0: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
4: Hi, uh, my name is Jen from Meridian, Idaho. Hi, Jen. How can we help you? Hi, um, I have a few chestnut trees, and much as I love to just roast them, I'm kind
5: of looking for something else to do with them. This year, I tried to make a chestnut cream, and I love putting it on toast or in yogurt, but I also don't know what to do with it. I know it's used in like, pastries, but I'm not sure where to start.
4: Wow. I love them straight up roasted. I agree with you. What it's also got going for it is it's so creamy when it's very well cooked and then pureed. Years ago, I developed a chocolate truffle recipe using the chestnut puree as the base. And it was really pretty darn good. So I'm sure there's recipes on the internet for chestnut truffles, you know, chocolate truffles. Okay. I did a crostata, you know, that's sort of an open-faced pie you know you roll out the dough and sure. then you put the filling in the middle and sort of turn in the sides I did one with uh, butternut squash chestnut and gruyere that I thought was oh, wow pr- pretty darn good you know a classic of course is with pork you know like when you add it to a stuffing with Italian sausage but also roast pork and chestnuts are yummy so there's a few ideas. Chris?
0: Jeez. How am I going <laughs> to, what am I going to say?
4: I'm a fan. You know, it doesn't always work that way. I
0: mean, the only thing, if you're going to have a big roast, which people do sometimes in the winter, you know, you could put chestnuts in the roasting pan and roast them along with a roast if you want to do something simple. Mm-hmm. That's probably what mm-hmm. I would do. And I think with pork, obviously it's perfect. Like if you're going to braise pork, for example, for a long time in the oven, uh, chestnuts would be great with that. I just think of them almost as like, you know, small potatoes you're cooking along with a roast or the braise. Okay. That's how I would think about it.
5: Well, that sounds delicious. I definitely have to try that next year.
0: Also, you know, in Italy, they have essentially a prune jam that they serve with cheese. I think a creme de marat, a, a, a chestnut cream, could also probably be used with a cheese course. My guess is that would be delicious, too. Oh, wow. I'm just trying to outdo Sarah by doing something fancier. Right?
6: You know, so. <laughs> that
4: sounds wonderful. I can't wait to try all those
6: things. Okay. Right.
0: Take care.
4: Thanks for calling. Thank you. Have a good Thanks. one. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Just give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: This is Barbara Storber.
0: How can we help you?
5: I'm a nutritionist, and I actually go around the country trying to turn kids on to healthy eating. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to ask you, what are some great ways to get kids to love vegetables?
0: Oh, man, that's not fair.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years with live theater shows, with food play. It's a real problem, as you probably know. Kids are really not getting the vegetables that they need.
0: Well, I have six kids. I can't say that anything I've done has been particularly helpful. The only thing I finally got to is I don't make, you know, it's just one meal for everybody. And if you don't want to eat it, have a piece of fruit. Obviously, you can pick vegetable preparations that are slightly sweeter. Use a gastrique, you know, which is a sauce, which might have a little bit of sweet and sour in it. You can roast uh, like sweet potatoes Roasted, even cut into slabs uh, are great, but I think it's about finding big umami flavors, right? I mean, create vegetable dishes with a lot of roasting going on, some charring, maybe something on top that has, as I said, sweet and sour just to get big flavors into vegetables. I would say that's the best thing I've done and that seems to work okay. Sarah, what about you?
4: Well, I was going to say, you know, for starts if there's a little bit like what you just suggested, if there's some way you could get the kids involved coming up with dips and them, you know, with the crudite, but also having them pick out a vegetable a week. And mm-hmm. you know, then you go back and cook with it and, and then they sort of own it more. You know, another approach would be to start with the sweeter vegetables like artichokes and asparagus. They're naturally sweet. Of course carrots and sweet potatoes are too. But so is eggplant and zucchini. You know, maybe roast them and then maybe sprinkle some toasted breadcrumbs on top to finish. Maybe even mm-hmm. with a little bit of Parmesan in it. I mean, there's spiralizers now, but years ago, I just took a regular peeler and peeled the carrot and then took those peels and made a pasta dish very quickly with some chicken broth. And it comes out really sweet and nice, and you can put other things in there as well. You know, you could do that with broccoli stems, too.
0: There's one other thing. Jose Andres, the chef, his mother would just essentially boil a bunch of vegetables Put them on a platter with olive oil on top, salt, and that was sort of always there on the table. That might be something that just is always part of what you're serving. Is not a bad Mm -hmm. idea either. But I, I like Sarah's suggestions, good ideas. The only thing I would end on is I wouldn't talk to kids about eating vegetables as it's something that we're assuming they don't want to do.
4: Exactly, yeah. I agree.
0: Look at it this way. If you go around the world, you find three- and four-year-olds eating the food of their family, Mm -hmm. which in most places in the world does include a lot of vegetables, right? Right, right, right. right. But most people aren't eating hamburgers all the time.
5: Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you for calling. Yes. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm chatting with Sam Ford, the chef and owner of Tuck Tuck Bites. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
7: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like,
4: pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white and it's just perfection.
8: My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an alagash white. you don't need to dress it up.
5: There's something about muscles
6: with beer, especially the white that is just so good.
7: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant but then also with like spicy Indian food. so I think it's just really versatile.
5: It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with allagash white.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of allagash white to it.
4: A lot of people use Allagash White in, like, a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add, like, a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that
2: could be the beer.
4: We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think...
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland,
5: Maine.
0: This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Sam Four her pop-up Tuk Tuk Bites marry Sri Lankan food with Southern classics such as curry leaf flavored fried chicken. Sam, welcome to Milk Street.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So Sri Lanka, could you give me just a quick history uh, and and talk to me about the different ethnic groups there? I mean, let's just start with the basics.
2: So it's an island off the coast of India, the southeastern coast. And it's really interesting because it was a central point for so many trade routes over the years. And so over centuries, there would be more and more influences brought in from all over the place. So, you know, you had the Portuguese and they brought in cooking with chilies. And then you have, you know, travelers from East Asia. You have folks that are getting spices. You have the English that are coming in and kind of, you know, imposing rule for a bit.
0: As they want to do.
2: As as they do, you know. <laughs> But there are primarily about four ethnic groups. Um, you have the Sinhalese, the Muslim population, the Tamil population, and then there's some small indigenous populations. So if you think about somewhere the size of West Virginia, and you've got a whole variety of everything that you can grow and everything that you can imagine seafood-wise, but it's it's the use of lime and coconut and fish and they use something called Maldive fish there that brings a sense of umami to everything that they cook. I mean, it's it's a fascinating food scene there. So
0: what about you? How did you get started in cooking? How did that all begin?
2: You know, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out myself. (laughs) Um, It's been a very, very strange culinary journey for me. I actually started out as a web developer. I was doing high-end restaurant websites in Boston when I lived up there and just kind of got into the restaurant scene that way. I was cooking with my mom those days, and I would bring up whatever I would make with her, and they were like, oh, this is great. You should bring some more up next time. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. I, I feel really excited that these chefs are super excited about my food. And uh, one of the chefs called Edward Lee when I first started this little pop-up behind Arcadian Bar in Lexington. And he said, she makes really good food. You should go check her out. And then I got invited to do a guest dinner at 610 Magnolia, and everything just kind of changed. It suddenly became this successful little pop-up that could, and, you know, I've been able to go all over the place because of it. But at its core, it really started as a way to get people out of my house because my brunches would get raided. (laughs) (laughs) We'd invite nine people, and like 34-some-odd people would show up. It was absurd.
0: (laughs) That's the best reason ever for starting a <laughs> pop-up but to get people out of my bloody kitchen.
2: <laughs> get out of my house. I don't get know. Get out of my you. house. <laughs>
0: uh, Edward Lee's really he's a really interesting guy. I like the fact that he encourages so many other people to to do pop-ups and other things, right?
2: Yeah, Edward's really been such a huge force for me. It's unheard of to me that someone would be so open and so willing to, you know, let a newbie in. He's been absolutely wonderful.
0: In a recent interview, you talked about the traditions of Southern cooking, the Southern table being similar to Sri Lankan culture and table. So what do they have in common?
2: Well, I mean, everything that we were getting through Africa, through the African trade routes from okra and and vegetables along those lines, made their way to Sri Lanka as they made their way to the American South. And I don't see a lot of difference per se in a stew versus a curry. I think it's just all in the building blocks and how you make it. But there's also cooking around so many other traditions, especially births and deaths, and cooking becomes the community factor. And so I think of Southern cuisine a lot in that way, in that people typically cook these large batches to feed, to break bread together.
0: So, so there are two trends, right? I mean, there's the notion of providing cultural context for food.
2: right. Which I think
0: makes food more interesting because you, you learn about the people and the culture and, and why things are done a certain way. And then, then you have cultural mashups, right? You have, you know, Mumbai meets New Orleans, yes. you know, on the other side. Uh, so the fried chicken and waffles has, you know, curry spice on it. So it seems like the food world is full of both of these things going full steam. Are these just separate things that will never pass in the night, you know? Or are they somehow linked together in some way?
2: I do think that they're linked together. I really do. I think that a lot of what's driving these changes in food is going to be the first generation of the immigrants of the 70s that came over. There were a large number of immigrants that came through in the 70s on medical visas. And so that's what the majority of the Sri Lankan community in the United States was. And so through that... The availability of ingredients is not as easy back in the 70s and the 80s. You can't, you know, Amazon some curry leaves straight to your house. So there was a lot of making do. And from that making do came some signature dishes of like, you know, the okra and tomatoes that I do are so similar to that of a southern table. It's just stronger with cumin and cayenne. And so I like to see how much it's changing because I think that these first gen kids are going to be the ones who are just pushing for change. That said, it doesn't really take away from the origins of it, I don't think. Now, when I do a lot of my food, I do it as a traditional application. So for example, with my shrimp and grits, I do a traditional tempered shrimp curry. It's a straight up Sri Lankan recipe curry that my mother taught me. But when I do the grits, I prepare it like you would a dish called Kiribath. So in celebrations in Sri Lanka, there's a rice dish that is just layered with tons of coconut milk. And I just turn that into the grit base and it tastes very similar, but it's different in that, you know, texture and, and presentation. Uh,
0: so let's take a couple dishes. You, you mentioned the shrimp and grits. What mm-hmm. about you, you obviously have a famous Southern fried chicken. Um, so everyone knows how to make, I guess, fried chicken sort of.
2: Everyone has a fried chicken.
0: Everyone has a fried chicken in almost yeah every culture. Yeah. So how do you do it in, how is it particularly Sri Lankan?
2: I decided to marry my upbringing and my culture. So I was raised in the South, born in Kentucky, raised in North Carolina. And I developed quite an affinity for buttermilk. Um, I like buttermilk biscuits. I like buttermilk brine to pretty much anything. And that is not something that they get in Sri Lanka. A lot of the acidity is brought about by either lime juice or just plain white vinegar. So I use the buttermilk as my brine, but I use every single spice I would put into a typical chicken curry. Mm. So I ground them all up, throw them in the buttermilk, and then let that penetrate the chicken. And I wanted to keep it as crispy as possible, so I also use some starches that are a little bit more common there. I'll use rice flour instead of regular flour, and then a little bit of curry leaf in the batter and dredge as well. So it's a marriage, really. You know, a little bit of curry leaf and the salt that hits the fried chicken to a little bit of the lime that'll hit it at the end to bring that brightness. Those are two very big hallmarks of Sri Lankan cuisine. But a buttermilk brine chicken is a very southern thing to have. I want people to have a reference point. I want people to be brave enough to try something that, you know, maybe they've never had a curry this or a curry that, or they've had a negative experience with a spicy food that they thought was too much. I I wanna be able to introduce people to those things in a gradual manner so that they can really understand both where I'm coming from and how it relates to where I am.
0: So it's Tuesday or Wednesday, it's five o'clock. You have a need to put dinner on the table. Could you just talk to me about how you think about that process using some of the tenets of Sri Lankan cooking?
2: My typical dinner in a Sri Lankan household, any dinner in a Sri Lankan household, is going to be rice and a number of curries. But for me, if I'm looking and it's 5 o'clock, I've got a couple of hours before I need to have dinner on the table, I'm going to plan out you know, one or two proteins and then three to four vegetables. And that's, I think, how it's different. It's not like putting everything into one dish it's here's your way to make your perfect bite. And that's how I like to think about it. You know, I I realize that kale and coconut go beautifully together with a curried beet, which also goes beautifully over super spicy black pork curry, you know, and you find these flavor combinations that really make sense.
0: So you're talking about three to four vegetables, (laughs) two kinds of curry. I mean, you cook. I cook. I mean, you really cook, right? <laughs> I cook a lot.
2: <laughs> it's not uncommon for, you know, for a brunch or for a dinner party, I'll be cooking for about four hours to five hours beforehand. It's like a, a lot of indecision when you can't decide what to eat, you just eat everything.
0: Or you can't decide what to cook, you just cook everything, <laughs> I guess, too. Um, so so you grew up with two traditions, obviously. What was the first time you went to Sri Lanka?
2: I was, I think I was 14, we were staying there for three months, and oh, I was terrified. I was worried that I was going to get spiced out. And then I started to understand how to dial things down so I could get used to them. From that point, it really just became almost like an adventure of trying to taste all the things, because I, I arrived with two things of American cereal. <laughs> so like, I was worried that I was not going to like breakfast. And then I, I think I left most of that there. You know, I, I adapted fairly quickly. And a lot of my strongest food memories are actually from those trips early on.
0: When you got there for the first time, did it feel at all like home? Or you just felt like this is a totally different universe and I have nothing in common with this place?
2: For me, I'd never had an experience where I walked into a room and everyone looked like me. Right. So it was jarring for a second. But they can still tell you apart. There's something that... I've been taught and been told about called the diaspora blues. And it's the feeling of you're never quite home here, but you're definitely not home there. And you know you you stick out. You definitely stick out a bit, but right. as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more accustomed and attuned to the traditions, you can't tell the difference as much anymore.
0: Are there things about Sri Lankan culture uh, when you go back? that you really wish you could bring back with you?
2: When I think about the elements of Sri Lankan culture that I would like to see here, I think back to maybe the second or third time I went. And when I came back, I was sitting in my house with my mom and my dad, and I just said, I'm terribly lonely. Because our families like to be together constantly to the point that sometimes it's to the detriment, but usually it works itself out. And that's the kind of thing that I think about with my childhood where you know I was hiding behind the aunties and watching them cook right. those are the moments that I think of and I don't really see a lot of that here it's, it's, right. it's cooking for necessity but there it's, it's a labor of love and you can really feel it there is a satisfaction for me that comes from eating Sri Lankan cuisine where I feel like I can feel the heart in it and I miss that when I'm not there, I really do
0: so you're a cook, you're a chef, you do pop-ups, you're a cultural ambassador, you're a writer, a cookbook author. The thing that drives all of this for you is introducing people to
2: new flavors? I like to, I like to network. I like to put people together to find you know a common ground and I like to put foods together to find a common ground. Right. I'm just someone who wants to bring all of the good stuff from all over into the same place. So maybe that's my job. I don't know. I haven't quite figured out what my job is in all of this. I just keep cooking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sam, uh, what a pleasure uh, having you at Milk Street.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That was Sam Ford. She's the chef and owner of Tuck Tuck Bites. She plans to open her first restaurant this fall in Lexington, Kentucky, called Tuck Tuck Snack Shop. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Portuguese sponge cake, also known as pau de Lô. Lynn, how are you?
6: I'm doing well, Chris.
0: Portugal uh, is famous for many foods, you know, clams and sausages, all sorts of things. But some of the desserts, the, the eggy desserts, are really wonderful. L- little individual sort of egg custard tarts, for example. But they also have a cake, and it's, a, it's like an angel food or sponge cake, but also has a custardy layer to it as well. So we decided, you know, this is something we had not made here. Uh, But it's a little tricky to get just the right texture, right?
6: It is. So traditionally, powder, de which is the cake's name, was just three ingredients. It was sugar, flour, and tons and tons of eggs. And it varies depending on where you go in Portugal. Some places it is a true sponge cake baked all the way through. In other places, it's so runny in the center and custardy that you have to actually eat it with a spoon. Uh, Our version is sort of in the middle. We have a, a really nice sponge. And then in the center, it has this little layer of custard It's a really unusual cake. We've never had it before. It looks really interesting. It rises really high, and then you take it out, and it falls. It almost looks like a crumpled up piece of paper on top of the cake. And we had a fair amount of trouble getting that perfect texture. And so we found a recipe from a chef who is from Lisbon. His name is Nuno Mendez. He, too, had a little bit of trouble recreating this himself. And so he added some olive oil to the cake.
0: And that was actually the... The secret ingredient. Uh, Not only does it... It really tastes good. By the way, when the kitchen was working on this, I made them make it like 15 times so I could have it every day for two weeks. It was so good. As you did, But it it also fixed the texture problem, right?
6: It did because... The tricky part of the cake is, you know, baking it just enough so that you have that custard in the center, but the edges of the cake aren't overbaked. Adding that olive oil added some fat to the cake and a lot of moisture, so it kept it really nice and tender.
0: And one other thing, uh, we added some coarse salt on the end, uh, which with the olive oil and the yeah. eggs and the sugar really, that just made, it's just a fabulous cake.
6: It's like something I think most people haven't seen yet, and it has such an interesting look to it, too. I think it's just such a cool cake. Um, it can be a little tricky to tell when it's done, as most cakes that are kind of soft in the middle are. Our recommendation is to test it just about two inches from the edge with a toothpick.
0: Lynn, thank you. Portuguese sponge cake, uh, a one-layer sponge cake with a custy layer under the crust. Uh, it's, it's now probably my top favorite dessert. Thank you.
6: You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Portuguese sponge cake at MilkStreetRadio.com.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. We'll be right back.
1: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row.
0: Right at home.
5: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life.
0: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Sandra. I'm calling from Albany, New York.
0: How can we help you in the kitchen?
4: A few weeks ago, my
5: family gave me a whole bunch of avocados just because they were on sale. And I didn't know what to do with them, how to preserve them. So I looked it up, and the way I understood to preserve them was slice them in half and then put some lemon juice and freeze them. There seemed to be no way to save the texture, though, so no matter Mm -hmm. what happened, they were just kind of like mush, from what I understood. And I'd never done that before, and I just didn't really want to eat mushy, gross avocados. So I was wondering if you know of any other
2: alternative way to preserve.
0: You know, I've tested some of these uh, plastic devices that are supposed to extend the refrigerator life of your avocado, and they don't really help that much. Okay. the problem is if you freeze avocado, because there's so much water content, the crystals will destroy the texture, as you just said. Mm. So that's not going to be great. You definitely want to get the skin off and uh, get the pit out. Uh, You you probably do want to cover it with lemon juice or oil or something to help with that. Depends what you want. If you want a really great avocado experience, Mm. (laughs) it's not coming Mm -hmm. out of the freezer that way. But obviously, if it's a couple of days... Actually, I would just put it in the coldest part of your refrigerator for a couple of days. That'll extend it a little bit. Oh, okay. Right, Sarah?
4: Yeah. How many avocados did you get? Uh, five. I would immediately put four of them in the fridge. Okay. They do continue to ripen in the fridge, and it will slow them down significantly. I definitely would never freeze an avocado because it's half texture, half flavor, and you mm. just lose the texture. What I did in the past is when I cut them open, I'd brush them with oil or brush them with lemon juice or but you'd have to keep changing it. Put a wet paper towel on top because it's all about oxidation. Then I read about this really cool thing. I swear it worked. You take your half of avocado that you have cut open, you put it in a closed container, and then you put a cut wedge of onion in there. So it's cut side up, skin side down, loosen the bowl, you know, but a tight bowl, not a lot of air. I put on the plastic wrap. I left it overnight in the fridge the next morning it looked great and it didn't turn brown and it didn't pick up the flavor of the onion interesting yeah i've never heard of that well when i read this you know it was something online because i was getting desperate because i had suddenly you know too many (laughs) avocados it said it has something to do with the sulfur in the onion i don't know but it worked so Okay.
0: Well, that was pretty cool the
4: onion, I have to say. That's Yeah, try it. I yeah, yeah, I'll have swear to try that out. I just about I did a happy dance. I was so excited. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Yeah, I'll definitely try that out. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you, Cedric. Take care. You too. Bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a call. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly. 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions@ at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, this is Julie.
0: How can we help you?
5: I am calling about black-eyed peas. I have always had trouble making these. They just don't seem to come out right. I don't have any trouble cooking any other kinds of beans or legumes, but for some reason, black-eyed peas just seem to tip over into overcooked very quickly. So I have some really nice heirloom black-eyed peas here in my pantry i'd really like to do right by them so i'm calling for advice
0: are you soaking them overnight are you just cooking them like lentils in boiling water
5: i do soak them in a few quarts of water it just seems like i can never quite catch them
0: is the water salted
5: yes i do put a spoonful of salt
0: i think the ratio is two tablespoons of kosher salt Or it would be one tablespoon of table salt per two quarts of water, I think, is the number. So you do that overnight, drain them, and then simmer them in water till they're done?
5: Right. But they seem to get overdone very quickly.
0: How quickly? You're talking about 25 minutes?
5: Well, I usually don't check. That's the thing. I find Uh that I don't check before maybe 40 minutes. And the thing about them is that when they're overcooked, it's almost like there's an off-taste. They actually are um, kind of unpleasant to eat, and I've had to throw the whole batch out, which is depressing.
0: These are supermarket beans?
5: Yeah, I do feel like our supermarket has a good turnover, but then again, how do you really know?
0: That could be the problem. I know that for years I bought beans from the supermarket and had (laughs) mixed results. I think if you go online and get really good stuff, I think that'll make all the difference. You know, I used to have black eyed peas and rice on New Year's Day. I've never had that problem, so I think it must be the beans, because you're doing everything right. I mean, Sarah?
4: The only thing I would say is, and Julie implicated herself, that, Julie, you have to pay more attention. Right. <laughs> actually, literally set a timer and make yourself go check them. But I agree yeah. with Chris. You'll probably have better luck with—I don't know if Rancho Gordo actually makes— Oh, they know, do.
5: Those are the ones that I have waiting to cook. It was the first time that I'd seen them. Yeah, so I was thinking— I'll make the investment. I just want to make sure that I don't screw it up the way that I have in the past.
4: I have one last piece of advice. If those don't turn out the way you want or you continue to have problem, not that Chris and I don't have all the answers to everything at every time for every reason, <laughs> but you might want to reach out directly to Rancho Gordo. Yeah,
5: that's a good idea. Well, thank you. This is super helpful. I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. All right,
4: Julie. Thank Thanks, you. Julie. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
2: Hi, my name is Alicia in
5: Asheville, and I have a tip for all you garlic lovers out there. I like to cook up a bunch of
2: garlic in some butter and olive oil and then add a little salt, pepper, and fresh parsley. And then I toss all of that in a jar in the fridge and when it firms up, it turns into a beautifully spreadable garlicky paste that goes great on a slice of French bread to make some quick garlic bread. Or you can just pop a little spoonful of that paste right into a soup or stew that you're making or even mac and cheese. Basically, you name it, that garlicky paste
5: will make it better. Happy cooking. I hope you enjoy my tip.
0: By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's regular contributor Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I'm doing well.
8: I have been eating a lot of pasta lately, and I'm here to tell you that spaghetti stinks. Oh, come on. You you just know I love spaghetti. Come on. Do you? Yeah, I, I, I like spaghetti. You know, spaghetti, we eat so much spaghetti because there's romanticism attached to it. It's it's a, a classic shape. But is it really, really that good? It's round on the outside that gives it low surface area in relation to volume. That means sauce doesn't adhere to it well. It means less if it contacts your teeth when you bite it. It's just kind of blah. There's
0: other shapes out there that are doing a lot more to earn your uh, admiration. Dan, you've forgotten a key iconic cultural moment, which is Lady and the Tramp, one yes. of my favorite early Disney movies. Uh, and when they go to the Italian restaurant and fall in love over a big platter of spaghetti,
8: yeah, what I took from that scene is that spaghetti is a pasta shape that's only fit for dogs. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so,
0: so so where do we go from here?
8: Well, so, so not only do I think spaghetti stinks, but I think there's a lot of other pasta shapes out there, even ones that I generally like that have fundamental flaws, and that is why I have set out to invent a new pasta shape. And not only to invent it theoretically, I've, I've been trying to actually get it made and actually sell it.
0: Well, there, first of all, there are, I think, thousands of shapes. So, I mean, no matter what you come up with, someone in the 11th century probably thought of it, right? I mean, look, there's a lot of obscure shapes out there. I've been working on this for
8: three years. And we, and we, we tell the story of this quest in a five-part series on the Sporkful Podcast that we're calling Mission Impossible. Um, of course. But in, in that series, I, I talked with Maureen Fant, who translated the Encyclopedia of Pasta, which is, for my purposes, basically the Bible. And she says that there are actually only about 350 pasta shapes that were cataloged for that book, huh. but there's 350 shapes with about 1,200 names. Because a lot of times you'll have basically the same shape, but one town or one region calls it something different. So when I heard that, I was like, only 350 shapes? There's got to be room for innovation there.
0: So I've got to stop you, though. You did this—this yes. this is a checklist, you multiple choice—fame, uh, fortune, <laughs> or just intellectual doggedness and curiosity? Mostly
8: the third. I mean, right. it, it was. I would break the third into two categories. So there's the surface thing of, like, I think that a lot of pasta shapes have issues, and I would love to see if I could do better. Right. But then I, I think there was sort of also the deeper motivation was— you know, I'm, I've never really made anything. I'm not a chef. I don't have a restaurant. I don't have a cookbook. This pasta project feels like the test of every food opinion I've ever had. So, so,
0: okay, you don't like spaghetti. What is it you do like about certain shapes?
8: So I should tell you, Chris, I have identified in my research three criteria by which I believe all pasta shapes should be judged. Okay. Number one, forkability. How easy is it to get the shape on your fork and keep it there? Number two, Sauceability. How readily does sauce adhere to the shape? And number three, tooth sink ability How satisfying <laughs> is it to sink your teeth into it? <laughs> so, like forkability, you know, like a lot of big tubes, like your rigatonis, yeah, they're they're too true. fat of a tube. They spring off the fork. Right. Then you got your your spaghetti, but also linguine fettuccine. They're too smooth on the outside. Sauce does not adhere to right. them well, they have That's low sauce ability And then tooth-sinkability, you get angel hair goes from zero to mush as soon as you put it in the water. Other shapes like fusilli, bow ties, wagon wheels, they don't cook evenly. You get crunchy parts and mushy parts. And and even a shape that I generally like, like a papardelle, the wide, flat one. Very tooth-sinkable, but hard to get on the fork in a great bite and kind of a one-note song.
0: So, So where did you go with this?
8: Well, so I, I start off eating a lot of pasta, seeing what I like and what I don't like. And then you know, the, the, there's the journey of, of conceiving the shape, and then there's the journey of getting it made, which uh, requires first getting a dye made. A dye is essentially the mold for the right. shape. I, it takes me quite a while to track down the only dye designer still working today in America, pasta mm-hmm. dye designer. It's a highly specialized skill, and there's been a lot of consolidation. So getting to him takes a long time and a lot of my early concepts get rejected because they're not physically possible.
0: The extrusion process is limiting in some way?
8: That's right. So so you remember the Play Doh Factory. Right. Uh you, you push the dough, you get like that star shaped disc and you push I, I the still dough have through. One. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I didn't throw it at Right, right. Whenever you're getting cranky at work, they just give you the play doh factory. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so you got the star-shaped disc. You put the right. dough through the disc. You get a star shape. Right. Pasta works basically the same way. So you have you have a disc, and that's the die, and it right. and it is designed to make a certain shape. But the dough is only passing through that die for a split second. And in that split second, the shape is made. Right. And you can't do certain things at once. Like if you want ruffles and a tube, like one thing crushes the other thing. You can't do them all in that split second that the dough is passing through the die.
0: So this is not a limitless project. There are, there are that's right, that's
8: right. And, and, I, and I felt very strongly, you know, I, look, I could have like 3D printed a pasta shape that just would have looked amazing on Instagram, but I really did not want to do that. I didn't want a gimmick. I didn't want right. something that was created for social media success. I wanted a legitimately great pasta shape that would be great to eat. And so for that reason, I was using traditional methods because I wanted a high quality product that would, be new and different, but also would scratch the nostalgia, comfort, food itch that I think we want pasta to scratch for us.
0: And you could sell thousands of pounds of it and retire. Look, if that's what happens, I'm not going <laughs> to complain. <laughs> so what did you end up with? What What is the perfect shape?
8: Well, I, I hesitate to use the word perfect, but I do think that the final shape maximizes forkability, sauceability, and tooth sinkability like no shape that's come before. It's called cascatelli, which is a variation on the Italian word for little waterfalls, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's basically, I started off with Mafalda. If you know Mafalda, like imagine like a long flat fettuccine with ruffles down the sides. Mm -hmm. Then we took those ruffles and sliced them off the the sides and moved them underneath. So they're almost like the legs of a table. Ended up we couldn't do a long shape, so we cut it short. So now you got the, the flat part with the two table legs, the ruffles sticking out from the bottom. And then on the top, you, you have a bump, a half tube. And so it curves, it has this half tube that gathers sauce, the ruffles gather sauce, and the ruffles also add a pleasing mouthfeel. Um, And then what I'm especially excited about is the spot where the ruffle strip hits the main strip, where they connect. It's perpendicular. It's a right angle. And if you think about it, there are almost no pasta shapes out there with right angles, where two pasta walls intersect. And what that does, it creates almost like an I-beam. It creates resistance to the bite from all directions. And, and it creates a subtle distinction in cookedness. So that spot where they intersect cooks a little less than the edges of the ruffles, which cook a little softer. And that's playing with fire, because if the disparity is too great, you get uneven cooking. But I think we got it where it's like just a slight difference. So you get different textural experiences, different mouthfeel, different different experiences, and different bites. And that that's very exciting to me.
0: You know, I was going to say, it sounds like you haven't been getting out much. <laughs> but of course, none of us have been getting out much. That's right. At least you use your time wisely. No, it's true. So so in closing, it's called cascatelli, is that right? Cascatelli, that's right. It's a short shape. It's
8: not like any other shape. Yeah. And um, I'm very excited about it. There we have it. Dan
0: Pashman, the inventor of cascatelli. Great job, Dan. Thanks, Chris. I kind of like the sound of that. That was Dan Pashman. You can hear about his quest to create a new pasta shape on the Sporkful Podcast. If you tune in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
4: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive
5: producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers
4: Sarah Clapp and Jason Teresky. Production help by Debbie Paddock. Additional editing, Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by
5: PRX.